have your Bible with you, please open up to John 15, no, 17. Sorry, John 17, verses 1 to 5 is where we're going to be at today. If you're new with us, thanks for being here. My name is Dan Halleck. I'm the lead pastor here. And really thankful to be with you guys today to worship the Lord and... That is what this season is all about. It's all about Jesus. And in the passage we're looking at, we're, we're reading through the Gospel of John, and here it was Jesus' last night on earth, and he was sharing a final meal with his disciples. And very soon he would be arrested, he would be tortured, flogged, hung on a cross, and killed. And he knew this was going to happen soon. And so... We read that Jesus uh, was filled with terror at the thought of going to the cross, obviously. And so the way, though, that he stood strong in the middle of this, of these terrible uh, impending circumstances, was by turning his focus onto God the Father and by praying to him. And here in John 17, Jesus prays for three groups of people. In this chapter, he begins by praying for himself that the Father would glorify him, and, and then he prays for the disciples who were with him, and then he prays for all of us, for, for those of us in here who trust in Jesus, for all Christians who would ever live. And so, last week we looked at the first verse of chapter 17, today we're going we're gonna to look through verse 5. And just see how Jesus does this. How does he pray for himself? And what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for me? So uh, before we read this, let's ask God to help us. Dear Lord, thank you for letting us come here today to worship freely you. And uh, we thank you for the good, the, new, the good news that's in these songs that we sing at Christmas time and and all throughout the year, and I just pray that as we open your word that you would, you would do what you want to do, which you say is to sanctify us. So please humble us now, God. Humble us before your word. Humble us before you, and before one another. Please fill us with your love for you. Help us to love you and others. We ask that you'd watch the kids next door and bless them and the ministry volunteers. And please protect us from the evil one, Lord. And we pray all this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we'll look at John 17, 1 to 5. I'll read, I'll read all of them first, and then we'll just look at it verse by verse. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's the word of the Lord. 
So we read there in verse 1, just to recap a little in case you weren't here last week, that, that in this time of great anxiety, Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and he asked the Father to lift up his Son and to glorify him. In other words, he asked his Father to lift up him, his Son, Jesus, and to declare him to be the greatest treasure in the universe. And the Father would do this by uh, lifting up Jesus on the cross and by lifting up Jesus from the dead and then by lifting up Jesus in the event of the ascension which he, uh, in which we, we know that he rose physically into heaven and is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. And, and as the Father glorified his Son, what we read here is that Jesus would at the same time glorify the Father and de- declare him to be the Holy Father of the universe who created everything. He's the God that uh, we're all accountable to. He's the God who overflows with love so much that he sent his only son to earth to rescue his enemies. And so in verses 1 to 2, when we look at it together, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. And when we looked at this last week, we asked some questions about it. And one of those questions was, who is Jesus to ask God the Father to glorify him? Right. That's a question you and I all have to answer. Who do we believe Jesus is? Right. Who is Jesus to ask God the Father to put him on display as the most glorious being that exists? Okay? Jesus would truly have to be God in order to rightfully request something this massive, eternally, right? Otherwise, if he was just a human, if he was just a human and not God, then a request like this would, uh, would make him what? It would make him an egomaniac. It would make him a lunatic. And so now in verse 2, Jesus doubles down on his identity, and he asserts that he truly is God's son when he says that God the Father has given him authority over what? All flesh is the way he says it here. He's saying that every being, every human being that's, that's ever lived, all flesh is under his authority. So that means all peoples, past, present, future, who have yet to be born, in all places, all throughout the world, would live and will live and die under the authority of Jesus. That's right, like in the Christmas story, we read about who are these magi who come from the east? They're not even believers. We don't know that for sure, but they're under the authority of Jesus. They're coming from this place we don't even know much about, and they come because they're under the authority of Jesus. And this authority, Jesus says, was given to him by God the Father. And so, as you sit here this morning, I want you to think about what it means to you that you and your family and your friends and your neighbors are completely under Jesus' authority. What does that mean for us? Well, obviously, it, it means that we answer to Jesus, right? Um, whether you believe in Jesus or not, 
whether you like him or not, you answer to Jesus now and after this life. That's what Jesus, uh, it's pretty funny when you read like a book like Isaiah or the Psalms, the way God says it, he's like, it doesn't matter if you don't believe in me, I'm still here, right? You might not believe in gravity, but it exists, okay? Jesus is our supreme authority over our circumstances, what we're going through right now. He's the authority over our families, our loved ones who know him and who don't know him. He's the authority over our jobs and over our, our, our finances, our money. He's the authority over our souls. And he's the authority over our eternities. And he can do as the authority over us whatever he wants to do with us, right? If he's God, he can do whatever he wants to do. And he's God. And in John 5, 22, Jesus says that the Father put all judgment into his hands. And so what that means for you and me is that with this authority, Jesus stands in judgment over all of us right now, either with a judgment of condemnation or with a judgment of eternal blessing. And now when the, when the Father put all of judgment into Jesus' hands, he could have told him this. He could have said, okay, son, your job is to eternally shame and condemn and destroy all people because they've turned away from us. That's not what the Father told Jesus. We read in John 17, 2, that the Father gave Jesus authority over all people so that what? So that he would use his authority to rescue some of those people from shame and from destruction. Okay. Here in verse 2, Jesus tells the Father that you gave me all authority in order to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. And so as our judge, Jesus uses his authority not to condemn everyone who deserves it, but to show his people grace that never ends. Okay? Jesus calls this gift of eternal grace, eternal life. And he says that he gives eternal life to all whom the Father gave to him. So not everyone is given eternal life, even though Jesus is the authority over all people. He doesn't give eternal life to all people. Eternal life is, quote, given, uh, it's given to all whom the Father gave to Jesus. And at least six times in John's gospel, Jesus refers to this group of people that God the Father gave Jesus, uh, gave to Jesus to save. And he refers to these people as the sheep, of his flock, we read about that in chapter ten. Uh, the sheep, the sheep who know his voice, and uh, they will never be taken away from him. He says, and in Ephesians one four, we read that the Father chose these people in Jesus before they ever existed. In fact, before the world even existed, and the Father gave His Son a mission before the world existed, and that was to use His authority as God to save these people while at the same time not turning a blind eye to their sin, 
And so the father told Jesus to use his authority as the judge of the universe to let go of all of his rights as God and then to suffer God's wrath toward the sin that these people have done so that they might be given eternal life. And by doing this, Jesus accomplished salvation on our behalf. This is how he was instructed to use his authority, and this is how he used his authority. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm very weary of people who want authority. Maybe you've worked with people like this, maybe you know people like this, but I'm very cautious of any person who believes that he or she deserves position or deserves to have authority over any group of people. Um, In our sinful nature, all of us have some desire for authority, right? And all of us also have a desire to rebel against the authorities that God has put over us. And so we gotta be aware of that about ourselves. And we've gotta repent of any pride that is inside of us that either insists on being in authority or that insists on rebelling against the authorities God's put over us. Because authority in and of itself is not a bad thing. Authority used rightly is actually, it's a gift from God, which is why God puts it in place, and it's why he himself is our ultimate authority. The purpose of authority is to use power to serve and to protect people and creation. Okay? So if you're a parent then God has given authority to you to serve your children and to protect them and to lead them in the ways of the Lord. If you're a teacher or a principal or in the schools and you have some type of authority, then God has given you that authority to serve the students in your classroom, to protect them, to protect their lives, to protect their rights in the classroom, and to show them the love of Jesus where they're at. If you're a coach, that God has given you that authority to serve the athletes in your care, to protect them from themselves and from others, to coach them and to lead them in a way that says that God loves them and that he is the greatest trophy they could ever have. If you oversee employees at your workplace, then God has given you authority to serve those who work under you, to protect them from harm, to make their work environment, their work environment, the best that you can make it so that they can see the love of Jesus working through you because you actually care about them and their careers. If you're a policeman or another government authority, then God has given you authority to serve our community and its citizens and to protect them from all types of danger so that our community is a safe and fair place to live. And if you're a leader of some type in the church, then God has given you authority to serve the people you are leading, to protect them from evil in all of its forms, to do what's best for the church even if it causes you pain, and to shepherd them in a way that displays God's heart and faithfulness towards his people. So the mission, think about this, we're talking about the authority of Christ. The mission that God gave the, the son was to use his authority to suffer for others 
in order to save them. Hear that? That's the type of authority that God is. God does not use his authority to curse everybody who has cursed him, even though that would be totally fair. He uses his authority to rescue many of his enemies. And that, he's incredible. He's so gracious, and we should be so thankful that he, Jesus, is the one in ultimate authority over all of us because he cares about what is right, and he knows what is right. He's the embodiment of what is right, and he promises that he will bring final justice on the last day to do what is eternally right. He didn't come to earth and die on the cross to give eternal death to humanity. He says in John 3.17 that eternal death was already our fate because of our sin. Jesus came to rescue people from eternal death and to give them eternal life. And in this gospel, Jesus talks at least 17 times about this phrase, eternal life. He says that he gives eternal life to those who trust in him for it. He says that whoever trusts in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. He says that he gives eternal life to people as soon as they trust in him. So in, in John 5, 24, he puts it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, present tense. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed, past tense, from death to life. So it's already happened in Christ. You pass from death to life. So what this means is eternal life is a present condition. It's not something that begins when your life on earth ends. And you can be sure that your experience of eternal life will be incredibly greater when you die. But the fact is that eternal life belongs to you right now and can be enjoyed by you right now if you belong to Jesus. When you think of this, some of us have been in the church a long time, some of us haven't. When you think of this idea of eternal life, what do you think of? What images come into your head? Do you think of, do you think of heaven? Do you think of being you reunited with your loved ones? Do you think of seeing what Jesus looks like? Do you think of white clouds and golden streets? I'm not saying it's bad if you think that, okay? <laughs> I'm not tricking you here. Do you think of, well, this one's kind of a trick. Do you think of those beautiful golf courses up there? <laughs> hey. All I know is God made this earth in six days. Heaven, he's been working a long time, so it's going to be some sweet places up there. Do you think of that mansion that Jesus says he's been preparing for you? It is great and healthy to look forward to heaven and to remember that this place is not our eternity. This is not our home. This isn't our destination. And, and while we look forward to heaven, it's also really important that we imagine heaven to be how the Bible describes it and not necessarily how movies and cartoons describe it or how near-death experiences depict heaven It's crucial to remember that heaven and eventually the new earth is only part of eternal life. Okay? 
those are the places where eternal life takes place when we die. But eternal life is actually much richer and bigger than heaven. Jesus says that the core of eternal life is knowing him closely. The gift of grace that Jesus used his authority to purchase on the cross for his church is the gift of living friendship with God. Intimacy with God. Reconciliation with God. Being close to God. Abiding in God. In John 17, 3, Jesus tells the Father here, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And Jesus gives God's people the gift of knowing God, not as their enemy, but as their friend. This is eternal life. And this is not a right that everybody is just born with. Jesus says that we're born under condemnation because of our sin, but friendship with God is a gift of his grace that he offers to us, which we have not earned. But he loves us, and he gives us that. And we possess this life when we believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's done what the Bible says he's done and that knowing him is <laughs> our greatest joy and our greatest purpose. Through faith in Jesus, God adopts us. He brings us into this relationship with himself and his presence, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is eternal life. And notice here how Jesus describes God. He does not say and this is eternal life, that they know you, God. He's more precise than that. He uses two additional words to describe God the Father. He says, first, that God the Father is the only God. Some of your translations might say one God. So Jesus is asserting here that he and God the Father are one God, um, not among many gods that exist. They are the one God. He asserts that there is one and only God and we can only get through uh, to God through Jesus. So the only way to God is through God, through Jesus. And the other word that Jesus uses to describe the Father is true. He's the true God. God's existence is not a lie. It's true. God truly exists and all of his words are true and his words truly depict how things really are and how they will be. And from the first book of the Bible to the last, we read about many false gods. Okay, Gods that people have created with their own hands. Gods that people want to be real but aren't. Gods that people have been told are real. Gods that people have been told can satisfy them and give them the longings of their heart, but they can't. Jesus says there is one true God, and then there's everything else. Now let's stick, step back for a second here and just apply this to our lives in a few different ways. First of all, obviously most people around us don't believe this. Okay? Most people in our country do not believe Jesus' words here. The majority of people don't believe that there is only one true God to whom all of humanity is accountable. Or if people do believe that there's only one God, then they believe that, that they don't believe Jesus when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because that's a claim of exclusivity. Even if it's true, it's an exclusive claim that he's the only way to God, even though 
it's inclusive and that it's open to all peoples of the world. So obviously there's a big difference between what Christians believe about Jesus and what the world believes about Jesus. And so as we take news of Jesus to the world, how do we respond to people who don't believe this? Who believe that there are actually many gods? Or who believe in no gods? Or who believe that it's not possible to know whether God exists? How do you treat them? You love them. You respect them. You treat them with respect. You're kind to them, even when they're unkind to you. You don't belong to you anymore. You've been crucified with Christ. Christ is working through you now. You're Jesus to them in the flesh. That's what our mindset should be. Lord, help me to love them the way that you would love them if you were right here physically standing with them. Allow God to break your heart for people who don't believe Jesus' words because they're lost. And they don't even know they're lost. And they're treating you the exact same way that you would be treating Christians if Jesus hadn't saved you. Don't waver on the truth. That's a big mistake. Do not waver on the truth. That's not how you love your neighbor, okay? Do not cower from your faith in Christ. But at the same time, don't waver on your love. Don't waver on the power of God loving other people through you because that's a mistake too. God tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that if you know the scriptures front and back, if you know all the right answers to every theological question, it is pointless if you don't love people. It's pointless. Talking with other people about Jesus should not be an attempt to win an argument or to make them say, you're right. Our conversations with non-believers should be seasoned with the truth of Christ and the love of Christ so that people will ultimately believe that Jesus is right. Okay, We're not trying to convince people my words are right. We're trying to point people to Jesus so that they would believe that his words are right. That he is who he says he is. This is how Peter explains these situations in 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. But in your hearts, Christians... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anybody who asks you for a a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So God tells us to always be prepared to give people a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus, yet When we give people our reasons, we do it with gentleness and respect, okay? We love them with our words. We love them with the tone of our voices. We love them with our actions. We love them with our listening. And when we share the gospel that way, then we can have a clean conscience. And we know that even if they slander us, our love and our kindness toward them will speak for itself, People will say, I don't like what they believe, but I like the way they believe it. (laughs) So hold firmly under the truth of Scripture, and at the same time, celebrate this, that Jesus has freed you to love his enemies. 
I don't know about you, but man, my, first, I just want to be like Peter, like defensive. Like nobody talks bad about Jesus. Nobody talks bad about God. Nobody. That's true. But we're in a window of history right now, of, of redemptive history where Jesus' instructions for us are to love our enemy. That's what we do. That doesn't mean, man, this goes back to what Chris is teaching in this forgiveness class too. Well, what does that mean? And this is where we get into the real, you know, the bones of it, where it's like, what does that mean? Am I a doormat to people? No. Okay, and so we'll get into that in that class, so there's another reason to come to the class. But it means by the power of God in us, we really seek to love other people the way Jesus has loved us. Right? And the second application here, we're talking about the one true God here. The second application is this for us. Is to make a really big deal out of Jesus this Christmas. Okay? Make a big deal out of Jesus There's so much to celebrate and enjoy this time of year, but we gotta keep pointing each other and others to Jesus. This is Jesus' day, okay? This is his season. He's the reason we celebrate this. He is the one true God. He loved us so much. He's been born among us so that we can live with him forever. I don't know what that means. I could list a million examples of what does it look like to make a big deal out of Jesus, but I just want you to be Think about that this week. How can I make a big deal out of Jesus this Christmas season? That's what we mean when we talk about glorifying God. It means to use whatever means we have to point ourselves and others to the greatness of Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you've noticed in our community, and I've been talking to some other people in other parts of the country, and they kind of noticed the same thing, but it's not news to most of us that... um, Obviously, there's an increasing trend in, in not celebrating Christmas for what it really is, which is Jesus' birthday, right? Christmas means Christ Mass, Christ Worship, Christ Feast, Christ Festival. It's the day of Christ. That's the whole purpose of it. I was standing in line at McDonald's, don't judge, um, at Thanksgiving, you know, about a month ago, and I noticed that they already had Christmas music playing. And I was, you know, it's... Man, you want to be a good Christian witness, and I'm not always a good Christian witness, but I'm saying this. Love those people who work at those places. If you and I, if you've ever worked at those places or Target like I worked at, it's hard. People aren't real nice. How come you didn't have my order 15 minutes ago? Yes, oh my goodness. Love those people because they don't get a lot of encouragement during the day. Anyways. I was, I, I was talking to the cashier, you know, high school girl probably, and I was just trying to encourage her, and I said, hey, you got Christmas music going, that's great. And the manager who was standing over to the side over by the fries promptly looks at me and said, it's holiday music. And I'm like, oh, my bad, sorry. Okay, silent night is holiday music. Um, now... I've also noticed, you think about this, just a growing trend in our neighborhoods. Um, we, our culture, and I could be wrong, I could just be getting older. But I think we celebrate Halloween 
a lot better than we celebrate Christmas these days. If you walk around, man, this town is a different night on Halloween. Like, it's the night, this town is the most hospitable, joyful town where you're going to meet all your neighbors and see everybody on the street and people, I mean, Halloween is like the new Christmas. Like, people are decking their houses out with lights and cobwebs up and fog machines and corpses in the front yard and, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And then you get to Christmas. It's like we put all our trips on Halloween. And it's pretty dark. I mean, I'm not telling you you need to put up more Christmas lights in your house, but what I'm asking you here is how do you and I point our neighbors to the light of Jesus this Christmas season in the darkness? Maybe it is by putting up a nativity scene. That's what my family chose to do this year. So I'm like, you know what? I can't just complain that two out of the 15 houses on my street are the only ones with lights up. Let's, I want to glorify God, so we're going to put up a, Christmas, a nativity scene. That's what we did. I'm not saying you have to do that. Maybe for you, it's taking cookies to your neighbors and just loving them. Maybe it's inviting them to Christmas Eve services with us. All I know is this, that Christmas is Jesus' day, and we want to point others to Jesus and celebrate him like crazy, because this Christmas stuff, it, what it reminds us of is that God loves us. He is glorious, and he's come for us, and he loves us. And Brian mentioned that this Christmas falls on a Sunday. So if you have kids or grandkids or neighbor kids, do your presents at 5 a.m., okay, which they'll probably do anyway. And then come worship with us for an hour at 10 a.m., because it's going to be really fun here. We're going to sing some Christmas carols together. Some of the kids and adults are going to act out the nativity story together. We're going to have a big old happy birthday Jesus cake and sing to Jesus. But man, I want to point my kids to Jesus on Christmas. We'd love for you to join us for that. And then you can go do all your other traditions. And if you don't come, I won't judge you either, okay? But Jesus says there's one true God. And that this gift of eternal life that he offers us is the gift of knowing him. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Knowing God is eternal life. Knowing God. That's like, it's amazing. Jesus wasn't, didn't elaborate a whole lot more on that. He just says knowing God. And so what does that mean to know God? Well, it does help to look at the context of what he's been talking about in the past five chapters at this Last Supper. But it starts, we know this, it starts with knowing the truth about God, okay? Uh, And that might be where some of you are at today. Maybe you're hearing some new things today about Jesus that you never heard before. Maybe uh, you're learning who God says he is in the Bible. Maybe some of you know a lot about God. But maybe you still don't know God. Because it is very possible to know a lot about God and not to know God. And so the next step for you is, by God's grace, to trust Jesus with your life, to trust him with your soul. And if you're not there yet, pray to him and say, God, I need your help. Please give me faith to trust you for my soul, for my salvation. Because you need him. You think you got issues? We had all got issues in this room, I'm telling you that. Earthly problems, we do. But our greatest problem is in eternity. 
And Jesus dealt with it for us on the cross. That's the big problem you need to get fixed first. Your relationship with God. Maybe you know you're lost and you need God to rescue you in your life. How could God rescue somebody like me? I'm terrible. That's the whole point of the gospel. You don't have to get your life right to be saved. Jesus came because you will never be right enough to be saved. Just pray to God and say, Lord, forgive me. Turn me to you, Jesus, and save me. And only Jesus offers us this true solution, which is forgiveness from God and friendship with God through Christ. Even the demons know about Jesus. They're good theologians. But they don't submit to him. Don't be somebody who doesn't submit to Jesus. Man, and if you trust in Jesus, ever since the, ever since Jesus' ministry, 2,000 years ago, what he said is this, believe and be baptized. Okay? Believe and be baptized. Not because baptism saves you, it's the, Christ saves you through faith, but baptism, ever since the early church, has been the outward visible symbol of what God has done by bringing you from death to life, by washing your sins away. Be baptized. I get it. It's hard. I know some of us, it's hard being up in front of a group. And I've talked to at least, I don't know, I shouldn't throw out a figure, but I would think at least a dozen people that I know who want to be baptized, but they're scared of being in front of people. I get it, okay? And I'm not saying you have to be baptized in front of everybody here on January 1st, but I would say this. Ultimately, baptism is, it's this, you're worshiping God through it, right? And this church, in my experience, it's always been a party here. That's what it is. We just love you. We want to celebrate with you what God has done in your, in your heart. So we would love to, to baptize you. If you want more inf- information about that, please talk to us soon. I don't even know where I'm at. Um, Okay, so we talked about knowing God. Knowing God means knowing about God. Knowing God means surrendering to him. And then the third part, which, which Jesus really fleshes out in this final section, is this word abide, which is awesome. The more that you really meditate on this, it means that we live every day with Jesus by faith. It means that we're growing to have Jesus as the center of our thoughts and our hearts and our minds and what he's done for us to forgive us for our sins. It means that we we converse with God. We talk to him throughout the day. We're vulnerable with God. We don't have to be fake. God knows everything. He made you. He knows you better than yourself. It means I can be real with God. And you know what? I've learned this about confessing sin. God has forgiven us already, right, for our sins. So why does he have us confess it? I do know this. It's one of the ways he purifies us in our relationship with him. Sometimes it's hard to bring to your lips to the Lord a specific sin that you're embarrassed to say. Have you ever experienced that? When you really get real, and you're talking to the holy God of the universe, and you confess a sin, 
you see it by God's grace in a way that you wouldn't if you just kept it hidden in your heart. And it doesn't make you want to do that sin anymore. Right? That's part of what it means to abide in Christ. Not to be shamed, but to say, ah, I don't know if it was Martin Luther or somebody, but he said, for every one look you look at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus on the cross. Look at Jesus. Celebrate Jesus. He's bigger than your sin. He loves you. Don't stay in your shame and guilt of your sin. Abide, Jesus says, in my love. This is what it means to abide, to know me, to abide in my love. That I love you. I love my church. I love this world. I want you to abide in my love. And he says, I want you to abide in my word, which is the truth. And by God's grace, he'll change our hearts so that his word, his promises become honey to our lips. Is how it's described in scripture. So that we want more. And we want to savor it. And we want to claim these promises for ourselves because they really are ours now. When we were outside of Christ, we couldn't claim these promises. But Jesus purchased those promises on the cross for us. And so those promises that we read in Scripture are ours as much as the blood of Christ is effective to give them to us. You get that? If you have a tough time believing a promise in Scripture is true, you say, well, how effective is the blood of Christ? It's perfectly effective. And it's God's word and it's true. And even though I can't believe it, I can't comprehend it. It's true. And God wants us to abide in him. Wow. He wants us to to live life with him. This is what he calls eternal life. It means that he lives in us and we live in him. And during our lives on earth, we experience this through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit who uh, lives in us and seals us and will not leave us. And when our time on earth is through, all of us who trust in Jesus will then experience eternal friendship with God in the flesh. Jesus Christ in heaven, risen and in glory. Heaven just happens to be the place where it happens. But what makes heaven heaven is the fact that Jesus is there and we will never be separated from him again. That's awesome. The reason we can do this, the reason we can have eternal life like this is because it's the Father's will. Get that? It's his will to do this. It's his will to save us. And since Jesus obeys the Father's will perfectly, then God the Father's will uh, is perfectly accomplished through the cross. Jesus says in verse 4 of John 17, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And what's interesting here is what? Timeline yet, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. But he says, I've accomplished what you gave me to do. Does that mean, well, he was just supposed to teach and preach and that's all he was supposed to do? No, what he's saying is that because it is the Father's will for him to go to the cross, and because Jesus perfectly obeys the Father, then Jesus can speak in the past tense about the completion of this work. He says that he did glorify God on earth by obeying the law perfectly like nobody else has, by accomplishing the work the Father gave him to do, in the sense that the work is already done. This is why, you see, Jesus died on the cross around 30 AD, but long before that, Long before humans ever set foot on earth, long before the world was ever made, 
Jesus was already the lamb who was slain. Get that? First Peter chapter 1 and Revelations 13 says that God the Father foreknew his son Jesus before the foundation of the world as the lamb who was slain. This means that the death and resurrection of Jesus was not merely a reactive solution to man's sin. The death and resurrection of Jesus to save sinners was God's plan before he even made the world. This is start, now it starts getting a little heady because God is outside of time and we're in this created thing called time. And so in verse five, Jesus says, and now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus, even in the way he phrases it, is, is phrasing it in a temporal way even though he's outside of time and he asked God the Father to bring him back into his presence in heaven. And he asked the Father to restore to him the glory that was his before the world existed. And so in eternity past, Jesus glorified God the Father because he was God. And God the Father glorified Jesus because he was God. The Holy Spirit was God. And Jesus was, from eternity past, the lamb who was slain even before he entered time and allowed himself to be slain for our sin. And then after he was slain on the cross, God the Father raised him from the dead to show his approval of the finished work that Jesus had done on our behalf. The Father raised him into heaven and Jesus was glorified. His glory was restored, but he was also glorified in this new way, having now accomplished the mission in human history. And the point of all of this, you guys, in verses one to five, is this one request that Jesus has. One request, that's it, that the Father would glorify him for the glory of God's name and for the joy of God's people. And the restoration of Jesus' glory in heaven as he's glorifying God the Father is what you and I will forever enjoy if we belong to Christ. Not because we earned it, not because we're more humble than somebody else, not because we're more intelligent and we figured this faith thing out, not because we're more deserving than anybody, but simply because God is gracious and he's compassionate and he's chosen to save a people for himself for the glory of his name. Spend time thinking about that reality this week. Celebrate it, man. Celebrate it. Celebrate it with your family and friends. Let's make a big deal out of Jesus this week and this Christmas. Let's seek to love him. Let's seek to love other people with kindness and compassion and with the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word here. And we know, Jesus, that you are glorified by the Father in heaven. You have finished the work that the Father sent you to do, which is for God's glory and because of your grace for the joy of humanity and specifically your church. Thank you, God, for these amazing truths that you give us in Scripture. Thank you for the promises that you give us that are not these abstract realities but are actually true 
assurances for those of us in Christ because of the effectiveness of your blood that you shed on the cross for us. God, help us to love other people. Help us to forgive other people. Help us to... I just pray that for people here who are stressed for different reasons about Christmas, that they would give it all to you. And that they would say, you know what, this thing that I'm worrying about just isn't as important as celebrating Jesus in his perfection this Christmas and his love for me. Help us, God, to show each other love and grace. Thank you for intervening in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.